Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text today is going to be taken from the reading we heard in Philippians as we continue through our sermon series on Philippians' complete joy. Uh, You may be seated. Let us pray. Almighty Father, we give you thanks that this place and this time belongs to you. We pray, O Lord, today that as we are gathered here in this place to hear your word at this time, you would grant us your Holy Spirit, so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Why do you guys think that the Beatles were so popular? This is a very important question for us to get to before we get to our sermon today. It's just something I've been thinking about uh, here a little bit, but what was it about the Beatles that made them really like the picture of pop culture for the past 70 years. What was it about that particular band? I mean, why the Beatles? Why not the Dave Clark Five, right? We like the Dave Clark Five. You know the Dave Clark Five? What are we glad all over? Catch us if you can. My personal favorite, bits and pieces. Nobody? Dave Clark Five? Nobody? Really, I thought this one was going to land better. Oh, well, okay, well, uh, both of these bands hit the scene in the early 60s. They come to America on what is known the British Invasion. Uh, but Dave Clark Five, they got a couple good, good hits and they just kind of go away. But the Beatles have lasted. So what is it? Why the Beatles? Well, there's a few reasons I'm sure that we could get to here. If you've ever read Malcolm Gladwell's wonderful little book, I think it's the book Outliers, uh, he talks about 10,000 hours, and if you do 10,000 hours of work in a particular area, you will become like a master and an expert. It only takes 10,000 hours, friends. So maybe that's what it was, the Beatles and all their success, because of 10,000 hours. But you know what I really think it was? Is that the Beatles were in the right place at the right time. You're still kind of in the long shadow of World War II. You need a new sound to, to come out in the world of sort of Um, lame bubblegum pop and here they come on the scene and they really just kind of took over not to mention the fact that the music is just absolutely fantastic from the beginning uh, to the end they really seem to conquer things though and I think it had a lot to do with the fact that they were in the right place at the right time okay now we can get to the sermon that's all I really wanted to talk about with that here today Uh, But I I do want to contrast that because it seems to me that a lot of people who find success in this world, a lot of movements that really take hold in this world do so because uh, those driving the movements are in the right place at the right time, which to me then makes the spread of Christianity really surprising. Because if we think, if we compare like the rise of the Beatles with the rise of Christianity, which seems like a strange comparison, but what you find is that Christianity really, given the time and place it was coming around, should not have spread. The circumstances in which the disciples find themselves preaching are not circumstances that are really conducive to the spreading of their sort of message. The deck really seemed to be stacked against them. What we'll see today as we look at uh, St. Paul, the, the chief disciple who is the author here, or one of the chief disciples who is who's the... Um, author of our book to the Philippians. He's writing his letter from a position of imprisonment to, in a world that doesn't want to receive his message. He's really in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
But what we find is that with St. Paul, as always with the gospel, he's dealing with a God who likes to work in the wrong place, who always seems to show up at the wrong time for all the right reasons. But let's just consider for a moment the cultural context in which uh, Paul finds himself. We find in our reading from Philippians today that Paul is preaching in a world, again, that is not really sort of ready for his sort of gospel. After all, he's in a world there in Rome uh, that is very religious. I mean, he is bringing one religion among many, but it is a very religious world, and the people in that area love religion so long as it is a religion of control or a religion that can be controlled. So, for example, uh, Paul uh, is very familiar, he himself being Jewish, is very familiar with the religion of Judaism. And Judaism is a religion that is governed entirely by laws and rules and institutional obedience and falling in line. And Paul comes along with a message that says, you are not saved and you are not righteous by your obedience and your performance, but you are righteous and you are saved before God because of the performance of another, because of the work of somebody else, because God And his gracious work for you in Jesus Christ has brought you salvation. Faith is a gracious thing, not a matter of obedience. So the Jews didn't like what he had to say. Further, he preaches this message of salvation by grace alone on account of Christ alone in the Roman world. Again, the Roman world is a very religious place. And they're very welcoming to all kinds of religions. So long as those religions bow the knee to the state, and bow the knee to Caesar. You should always be suspicious when the state really likes your religion, I think. (laughs) But they come along, and uh, you're free to worship however you like. You just have to say Caesar is Lord. Pay lip service to the government. You can be pretty much doing whatever you please. And Paul and the apostles say, well, no. Caesar's not Lord. There's one Lord, and it's Jesus, and he is Lord of heaven and earth. And not only that, he's a better Lord than Caesar. He's far more gracious and benevolent than Caesar ever could be. And so Paul is going around preaching this message and preaching this Jesus, and it gets him thrown in jail. So it's a message that the institutions don't like to hear, and it puts him in a prison, which is not exactly the ideal platform for getting your message out. You can't really tweet a lot from, from prison. Further, whenever he's out of prison, wherever he goes, he seems to be followed by people who want to undercut and undermine his message with, with another message that's going to seem like better for the community. Think about last week. We were talking about when Paul first arrived uh, in the city of Philippi. He was confronted by a woman who was preaching against Paul. She was a demoniac who could sort of um, read the stars. We would, we would say she was kind of a demon-possessed psychic. And she was very good for the demon-possessed psychic business. Do you remember we were talking about this? And she was following Paul and his partner Silas around, and she was harassing them. And do you remember what she said when she harassed him? This is what she was saying. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now you need to understand, she's not saying this positively. She's saying it as an accusation. She's not celebrating it. She's trying to make these guys look foolish. So what does Paul do? He casts out the demon, and this, of course, again, gets Silas and he thrown in jail. 
because the men who uh, employed this woman were not interested in Paul's message and were not interested in a guy who's going to take money away from them. Paul and his message was bad for business. Jesus and his preachers were bad for the way of life in the world there, the way they saw things. You've got the institutions against you. You've got the businesses against you. You've got the people who aren't so sure they like what you have to say. It's the wrong place at the wrong time. The circumstances seem to be stacked against Paul's message. If you were to read the headlines in those days about Paul, if they had headlines in those days, you would walk away from those headlines thinking to yourself that movement is done for. Everyone keeps going to jail. The government wants to put them down, and nobody wants to listen to them. Now, as I, as I think that through, it strikes me that we think we're in a very similar situation today, and maybe we are. After all, if you read the headlines about the church right now and the way the church engages the culture, they're not very positive. I think I tell you guys this a lot, but it's like every single week I'm getting a new advertisement from some company who's going to sell me a book that's going to change uh, the landscape of the entire world, which is a pretty bold thing, uh, because everything is falling apart in this country for the church. We're experiencing the great de-churching. We are living in what these books call the post-Christian culture. And you're seeing this now everywhere. I'm seeing this in headlines in major news publications, talking about the great de-churching, that we live in a post-Christian culture. And maybe we do. After all, I'm sure you've heard this, that uh, less than 50% of the country now attends worship on a Sunday morning. This is the first time it's been this way in our country's history, I think. 50%, less than 50% of people are in church on Sunday morning. Uh, what's more, uh, we have everybody, we're experiencing this kind of in our own homes where people that we know who are brought up in the faith, people we helped bring up in the faith, who we thought for their lives loved the, the Lord, are now walking away from the church. They're leaving the church for any number of reasons. And not only this, not only does the culture seem to sort of be against the church or to be moving away from the church, we're seeing again, as we've talked about this before, I know for sure, we're seeing again where now the governments are starting to stand up against the church. And we're seeing this again in Finland with a bunch of Lutheran churches over there. Where in Finland there are people facing hate speech trials because they quoted the Bible on the issue of homosexuality. The gospel is not welcome anymore. The preaching of the word seems to be less welcome. It's the wrong place at the wrong time to preach the gospel. So what do we do? Pack it up and go home, lock the doors and, and sort of just huddle together and make sure that we remain the holy chosen ones here? What do we do? Well, do we give up? Paul says, no. Paul, in fact, will have none of this wrong place, wrong time kind of talk. I love, this, I love this account. Paul is in jail, and it looks like everything is against him. And you know the Philippian congregation is worried about him. And so these are the words he writes to them. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Wait, what? All those circumstances, false teachers and imprisonments, having your platform removed and your life threatened, having your words twisted and used against you, this has served to advance the gospel in the wrong place at the wrong time? And Paul's like, wrong place, wrong time. Do you not understand what's going on here? 
This place and every place you go belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ who is risen from the dead and is Lord of heaven and earth. The whole place is His. He's the Lord of eternity. He holds time in His hand. It's His time and His place no matter where you are. Even if you find yourself locked up in jail, it's the Lord's place and it's the Lord's time. Listen to what he says. So here I am. Everything's working here out now finally just to advance the gospel so that it's become known. I love this. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard, Caesar's employees, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Don't trust the headlines. Trust the Holy Spirit. <laughs> The headlines say preaching the gospel is going to get you locked up in prison. Paul says, the Lord has opened to me a marvelous mission field where I am preaching to the imperial guard. And the imperial guard is coming to faith in Jesus. And he says, and then there's all the rest here. I'm in jail surrounded by criminals, people who are guilty, who have their lives pretty much done for. They have no hope in this world, and I've given them Jesus, and you'll see them now at the resurrection of the dead. You can listen to the headlines, but look what the Holy Spirit is doing right here in this prison. We were talking about this in staff on Tuesday, and Maria Dangel shared this wonderful story about a friend of hers in a Bible study that she attends. Uh, she, she's an older woman, and she was diagnosed with cancer, and this was just shocking news to everyone in the Bible study. They, it it kind of gutted them, and they were very sad, and they started praying for her and crying. And, and while they were crying, the lady said, Would you guys stop? Would you just stop crying? Don't you see what's going on here? I've got to go to chemotherapy like a couple times a week. The Lord just gave me a whole new mission field. I'm going to be sitting there, and those doctors and nurses are going to have their ears filled with Jesus while I'm in the chair. Now that's something. What worse place? What's more wrong time, wrong place in the chemo chair? Not for her. Her weakness was now the place for God's strength to enter the ears and hearts of so many more people. She could say with St. Paul, what has happened to me has now served to advance the gospel. Not only this, Paul says, not just me being here in this situation able to preach. What I'm finding is that as I'm sitting here in this prison uh, being able to preach to all these people, that those uh, Christians outside of my situation, outside of these prison walls, are growing more bold because of it. They see me in these terrible circumstances and how the gospel continues to work here, and now they are growing more courageous in sharing the gospel outside of these bars. Paul's imprisonment the sufferings of our brothers and sisters in Christ, when we see martyrs dying for their faith and standing firm upon their confession, even at the threat of their own lives, this makes us bold to more confidently preach the news of Jesus Christ. Now I know, I know what happens. We start saying this and we start sounding a little too confident and right, right away in the back of our heads, the what about game starts to get played. But what about, you know, those people who speak against us, what about those headlines? What about those who mock us and who rail against the church and the message that she preaches? Paul says, yes, there are those who will speak against us, and the Lord will even use that. I love this. This is what he says. 
Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here, put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, I've, I've always struggled with these verses. Like, I have no idea what he's talking about here when he says, oh, they preach the gospel with, like, the wrong motives and from pretense. And I'm like, what does that actually look like? And then it dawned on me, that demon-possessed psychic girl. She's going around deriding Paul, trying to insult Paul, trying to make Paul look foolish. And how does she do it? By repeating the message that Paul preaches. Like here's somebody trying to undermine Paul's message and she cannot help but proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of a number of years ago I was reading a book by uh, the great arch-atheist Friedrich Nietzsche, if you've ever heard of Nietzsche before, heavily influential on our culture right now. Uh, but Nietzsche has a book called The Antichrist when he's speaking very vehemently against Christianity. And in that book, he says the problem with Christianity is that it exalts weakness. How foolish to worship a God who would die on the cross and exalt the lowly and deal with nonsense like mercy and forgiveness. What we need is something that helps us overcome. We need something that gives us power and strength and might and makes us the overcomers of all the weaknesses of this world. Enough with this God of weakness. And as I, as I think about Nietzsche's argument there, it strikes me as a quite amazing that he's actually right in this way. We do have a God who deals in weakness. We do have a God who shows up for the weak and the lowly and the foolish sinners of this world. We do have a God that we worship who died on a cross. To be sure, he rose again. But he put himself in the place of weakness so that he might save those who are lowly and weak. Nietzsche, despite himself, ends up giving us the gospel. And is there more of a wrong place and a wrong time to find the message of the gospel than on the lips of an atheist? And then there you have it. It cannot help, whether from rivalry or from deceit or from pretense or truth, to proclaim Christ. And Paul says, that's why we rejoice. I mean, do you think about this? You want to talk about the wrong place and the wrong time? Think about the gospel itself, as we were just alluding to. You want to talk about the wrong place and the wrong time? The God of glory putting himself in our flesh so that he might be found in the wrong place on a sinner's cross. At the wrong time, on the Friday of the Passover, at the time of sacrifice. God in the place of sinners offering up his life as a sacrifice when he should be only receiving them. To do what? Save you and me. Save the wrong, sinful, weak, needy people in this world. Even us. That wrong time, wrong place, God, one salvation, ushered you in, out of the darkness into his marvelous light and has done all of this because for some wonderful, shocking, delightful, amazing reason, this God loves has done all things for you and yourself. And isn't that what we need to hear at every time and in every place? 
that you are loved by God, that you are forgiven by God, that he put himself in your place on the cross and died to forgive you for all of your sins. It's exactly what he's done for you. There's no wrong time or wrong place to hear that message. And what's more, there's no wrong time or wrong place to share that message, to proclaim that message. I know the headlines will tell you otherwise, but we're not interested in the headlines around here. We trust the Holy Spirit who has put you and I in this time and in this place so that we might hear the good news that your sins are forgiven, and we might share it with the world around us so they too might come to believe. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have granted us your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would make us bold and wherever we find ourselves to proclaim your message, knowing, Lord, that you use your word to bring others to faith. Lord, help us to know that this time and this place belongs to you, just as we belong to you will do so for eternity. Grant us grace to trust in you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.